Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. One of the most exhausting things I found about being pregnant and the mother to a small child was the amount of advice, often conflicted, which was foisted upon me by well-meaning friends, strangers and the media. No one ever suggested what I might like to consider doing, but presented their advice in terms of what I must be doing. I remember that feeling of frustration of not knowing why I had to be doing all these things, of being told that I shouldn't eat too much, but I definitely mustn't diet, uh, that while I had to keep active, exercise could result in miscarriage, and that stress was bad, but on no account should I have anything as reckless as a massage. So when I came across a book called Bumpology, a book written by a science journalist, I pounced on it. Linda Geddes had said she wrote the book because I wanted to indulge my curiosity and investigate the truth behind the old wives' tales. She uses her skills to wade through scientific research and to question doctors and scientists in an attempt to make sense of it all. My well-thumbed copy of Bumpology is now eight years old and I'm delighted to have Linda joining me today. Thank you so much for coming along. I've wanted to meet you for so long because I think it was the best best pregnancy book I ever read thank you thank you well it was it came from it came from my own frustration about all those things about you know you're given so much conflicting advice when you're pregnant and when you're a new mother about you know what you what you should be eating what you should be drinking how you should be sleeping where you should be going all this stuff and and some of it kind of you're like really and and other times you're like well that sounds quite sensible but but is it and then I also just had all these questions that I was just curious about like you know can a baby taste what what I'm eating if I'm having a curry because you know you'll eat something spicy and then you'll get a kick and you're like oh does that mean they can taste the curry or what <laughs> um so it was literally I was working at New Scientist at the time as a as a as a reporter and I was pregnant and all I could think about was this baby that was developing inside me and I was spending my whole time on Google or <laughs> or reading you know reading scientific journal papers to try and get answers to these things and bumpology was kind of my way of doing that without getting the sack. So <laughs> it started out as a blog for new scientists. And then um, and then when I was on maternity leave, actually, I realized there's, there's far more questions, actually more questions once you have a baby than when you're even pregnant about, you know, about breastfeeding, about how you should be stimulating them, about about sleep, about crying, about everything. Yeah, you realize the pregnancy is the easy bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and and we're kind of thrown into this world completely unprepared. I mean, you know, you go to antenatal classes and think a lot about the birth or I, you know, I went to national, I went to NCT, National Childbirth Trust classes, and it was all focused on the birth and having the perfect birth. And then there was very little preparation for what happens after that. And so, you know, I, then I had this baby and I, I was like, I, I need more answers. So then it, then it turned into a book. There's yeah. a lot of I find there's a lot of advice around having a baby that is simply not evidence based or, you know, people will, you know, stuff that people sort of presume as fact, like even little things like that you can tell the sex of your baby from the shape of your bum and people think absolutely you can. And yet there's no evidence to support that at all and why would there be quite frankly it's an extra chromosome why is that going to dictate the shape of your bump no no absolutely and and so there's there's things like that which are relatively harmless and quite fun and then there's other stuff which is frankly quite harmful and and causes stress and anxiety and often I can't think of any like specific examples off the top of my head but but you know quite often it will be based on um a single 
study sometimes maybe even published you know done in animals Mm -hmm. that there's been a newspaper headline about it and then someone's extrapolated that and then it's kind of got gone through several rounds of gossip and and then it comes back to you and and it's treated as gospel and 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 that that's problematic I mean I have a good example of that so my my husband's also a science journalist and many years ago he was working for the Daily Telegraph and um, he wrote a story about how using a laptop will affect his will affect sperm quality and it was a I think quite a small study it was being presented at a conference so it hadn't even been published in a in a journal yet and here you know scientists go when scientists publish their results it goes through something called peer review where other scientists look at it and judge it and say is this good enough do they need to do extra extra work before we'll accept this finding and so he was just writing about preliminary findings that were being published as a conference at a conference and um, a few years after this, he went for a, a sperm test for another article. I think it was when we were thinking about getting pregnant. And he was like, I wonder if I'm, you know, maybe I'm too old to have babies. I'm going to go and have a sperm test just to see. And um, and when he went to the clinic to give his sperm sample, the um, the nurse said to him, oh, well, you know, do you use a laptop on your on your lap? Because, you know, that can affect sperm quality. And he said, out of interest why do you say that? And she said, oh, I think I read it in a newspaper. <laughs> so he was having his own, his own story quoted back at him as, as you know, like gospel. And, and in fact, I think there's not actually, there haven't been that many subsequent studies to suggest that's, that's completely accurate. So, you know, like stuff sticks, stuff. Especially, especially stuff that chimes with what people already think. Yeah. I think. And that's, yeah. that's, that can be a problem. But what I found really interesting about um, bumpology was how you explain how, you know, evidence base is created because it's much more complicated than it's, it's never sort of black and white. You're mm. looking, you have to look at large numbers and actually studies aren't all equal, are they? They're not. And I mean, sometimes I fall into this trap. I think we all fall into this trap of going, it's science, therefore it's right. And scientists are clever people. Scientists are just people. And you have good scientists and bad scientists and you have really good quality studies and you have not such good quality studies and then even a good quality study so what the way science works is someone will have a hypothesis they'll devise a study to test it and then they will um, once they've done the study they'll write up the results in a scientific paper and then they'll send it out to various journals and there are all sorts of journals like you know hundreds and thousands of these things I mean there there are so many different journals and again they differ massively in their in their quality so you have extremely you know the kind of creme de la creme of journals like science and nature and the lancet and the british medical journal and then you have not so good journals and often sort of gutter 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 press of (laughs) the gutter press of of medical literature um but yeah you have you know you have different different levels of journals and often a scientist will submit their paper to the top journal first and it will get rejected and then they might try another journal and and so and it's rejected on the on the basis that it's actually not that interesting because the study wasn't big enough or it wasn't conducted well, the right well way. about the quality of the evidence yeah. often um and then and then even if it's published in a really prestigious journal and it's a really great study and it's been peer-reviewed which means other scientists have read it and gone yes 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 this is a really good quality study we like it um the next thing that will happen is other scientists other independent scientists will try and verify that finding with studies of their own and then quite often you'll get you know a good quality study that will find one thing and it will get reported by the media and I'm part of the media so you know I am also to blame for this (laughs) frankly but you know it will get reported by the media and then a year or two later another study will come out which will find the opposite and it might be another good quality study and then another study will come out which will find something in between another one will come out supporting the first study five others will come out supporting the second study and so you know science is kind of complicated and and you need lots of it really to come to a strong conclusion on something and one way I mean when I was writing bumpology you know I tried to sort of explain this and the the best thing the best the best thing you can really do and this isn't perfect either but often the best thing you can do is something called a meta-analysis which is where you bring together lots of different studies and you pool the results and then you have this you know very large population that you can start to like ask questions of and and on and then you can kind of go okay on balance the studies say 
this and it may support the first study or it may say the first study was you know it's an outlier don't Mm -hmm. know why it found different results but most research suggests that this is the case so you know there are situations where you can look at a meta-analysis and go okay on balance then I think the studies say this Mm -hmm. and then you can be a bit more um you can be a bit more confident that what you're doing is the right course of action because sometimes it is a bit gray you know what what you should be doing and we you know for example drinking alcohol in pregnancy I mean, we know that actually a lot of alcohol consumed in pregnancy is very dangerous and can result in fetal alcohol syndrome. But plenty of people drink a sort of small amount of alcohol or even a medium amount of alcohol and seem to be perfectly fine. Yeah, and and, and it's really important that science gets done on that issue because it's really, it's really, really important to find answers to this. But you're right, there's this grey area. So, so definitely people who drink... I mean, definitely, I think you could say people who drink more than six units of alcohol per day during pregnancy, there's a pretty good chance that their baby will develop fetal alcohol syndrome or have have other problems. Um, I think even two units a day, there's fairly good evidence that that is going to be harmful. Um, But again, it's going to be like a sliding scale. And And it it will depend also on whether that woman is five foot and weighs seven stone yeah it's six foot and weighs yeah. 11 stone and it also there might be all sorts of other things that we don't understand like genetics mm-hmm. um like what point in pregnancy she's drinking is it all the way through is it binge drinking or is it spread out you know there's all these things which are really really difficult to disentangle so so then you get this kind of gray area where you've got some studies suggesting um moderate drinking is dangerous you've got others saying moderate drinking's fine and then it gets even more complicated when you go down to you know down to one or two units of alcohol per week because you'd need a huge sample size to be able to detect a difference at that low level of alcohol and um and, then and frankly an those studies haven't been done and, and 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 there's so many other factors that come into play like education level or all sorts of socioeconomic thing you know maybe you can afford to drink wine if you're organic wine wine if you're wealthy and does that make a difference no one's done that no one's done that study no one's ever going to do that study and what you really need is a random double blind randomized control trial where you take randomly pick one bunch of women randomly take another bunch of women and you say to the first group we're going to get you to drink um a glass of wine every night all the way through pregnancy and then maybe you take another group and you say we're going to get you to drink a glass of beer every night all the way through your pregnancy and then we're going to take another group randomly again and we're going to say you drink nothing at all during pregnancy and then we're going to see what happens to your babies and you need loads of women and then we're going to see what happens to your babies and then we're going to follow those babies as they grow into adults and ideally into old age and see what happens no one's ever going to do that study. It's completely unethical. You can't control what people do. And you'd and need vast amounts of funding. You'd also need a group who thought they were drinking wine but weren't. Yes. And who thought they were not drinking alcohol but were. Yeah. So that's where the, du- that's where the double blinding <laughs> yeah. thing comes in. So, so yeah, it's never going to be done. And so we can only go on um, what is published. And it's not always the best quality. But, you know, on, we can kind of pull things together and say, on balance, this is what we think. And so, you know, the, you know, the, there's various guidelines ranging from, I think, I think, I mean, really, I, I personally, having looked at the evidence, I think that the, the UK advice of one to unit, one to two units of alcohol once to twice a week is pretty sensible. But then it's, you know, it's up to you as a, as a woman or a family to decide how much risk you want to take. So for some people, they might say, why would you take that risk? You know, if we don't know, I'd rather drink nothing at all. And that's completely fine. That's completely valid. But then other people might say, well, you know, actually, it really makes me feel a lot better about myself and a bit more normal to be able to occasionally go to a wedding and have a, have a you know, toast the bride with a, with a glass of champagne or something. And that's, that's also, I think, completely valid. Um, but that's, that's a very different thing to saying, I'm going to drink a glass of wine every night or two glasses of wine every night or more you know so I think you know you have to be let people make up their own mind about how much risk they want to take but whilst also being 
well aware of when it is getting highly risky as opposed to a low risk. I remember being told about a sort of early pregnancy book and the advice was drink plenty of gin so you have a nice small baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, until relatively recently, actually, midwives told women to have a, a half a pint of Guinness every night when they're breastfeeding or uh, when they're pregnant pregnant, to keep the iron levels up yeah gosh and what about those women who I mean we've all done it we didn't realize we were pregnant got quite drunk Hmm. and then realized we're six weeks pregnant yeah is there is there I mean that's what people really freak out about and then when they see those headlines that drinking is so um I mean I had um exactly that and then I ended up miscarrying and then I thought was was that my fault because I didn't even realize I was pregnant but there is now a bit of evidence to show that the important bit is after implantation which is usually when you know you're pregnant isn't it yeah but that's fairly you know that's it depends implantation happens quite soon Mm. um it's it's really difficult but I think you know there there are enough people out there who have done just that Mm. and their babies have been completely fine and there's nothing you can do about it anyway so so why 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 beat yourself up about it um just once you do know you're pregnant then just try and behave well then and do the do the best then and and just remember that pregnancy you know if your baby comes out fine even then you know you've got a whole you've got a whole childhood of raising them of doing all sorts of other things that could be harming their development in some way so obsessing over something I mean okay it's fine actually alcohol is some is probably one of the things you should be worrying about more than lots of things like is it safe to use a jacuzzi or (laughs) or go horse riding yeah you know but let's let's try and put things into perspective and actually in a lot of cases especially with early pregnancy people who are providing the services of say a jacuzzi or horse riding it's just not worth them to take the risk to say you know you're probably going to be fine if you if you get into my jacuzzi or have a massage but they just don't want to take that risk because miscarriage is so common in those first 12 weeks they don't want to be blamed for it so it's easier for them to say actually we're not going to provide that service for a woman in the first trimester yeah yeah absolutely yeah, I think the, I think actually the exercise thing is is really interesting. Um, so when I was when I was researching pompology, I was I can't remember why I was in America. I was in America for some reason, and I went to John Johns Hopkins University in in Baltimore, and um, and they were actually doing studies or where they were putting pregnant women on a treadmill and getting them to run, and then scanning their babies at the same time. So the baby was like bumping up and down, up and down as the woman was running, and what they found was the baby was just fine. The baby, you know, they've got a lot of cushioning in there, and they were and measuring they were just, the impact, you know, whether the physical impact of the baby. They were measuring than whether the... the baby. I think it was I mean, this is a long time ago. I think they were measuring whether the baby was getting enough oxygen, um, where the blood flow was going, but also what what the baby was just doing. And they were just like, you know, chilling out in there. It wasn't really affecting them at all. Um, So there are things like that where you kind of like your, your, well, it depends on your attitude, doesn't it? I mean, you, it might seem quite logical to go, well, running is really, you know, it's a hardcore thing. You get very out of breath. There's a lot of bumping and you know moving around going on there that probably is a bad idea for a baby but then actually when you do the study and you you measure what's happening to the baby not so much is happening to the baby so you know I think it is important to do the scientific research because sometimes what seems like common sense isn't actually supported by by the evidence hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And it's also very difficult to say a certain amount of exercise is not advisable because it depends on so many other factors. Like, I mean, it's one thing for for 
Paula Radcliffe to go and run a marathon when she's, you know, six months pregnant than someone who's never run a marathon before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we are all, we are all different. We are all different. Um, yeah. And again, like, and, and people's risks vary. So, so, you know, again, with exercise, I, when I was pregnant with my, can't remember which one it was, um, but I went snowboarding when, um, I went some snowboarding in the kind of like, I think in the first trimester. So maybe it was about 11 or 12 weeks of gestation. And I did a load of research, spoke to various doctors about it. And what we came, we came to the conclusion that actually the baby is still confined within your pelvis at that stage. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm a good snowboarder and I know that I'm not going to fall over very much if at all. And I took it really easy and went on, you know, blue runs only and didn't fall. Um, but, you know, for somebody else who, and also I, I have quite a lot of cushioning on my bottom. So. <laughs> but, you know, for, for someone with a smaller frame who has never snowboarded before uh, and the conditions are very icy, that might be a, a terrible idea for them to go snowboarding. Um, and actually, before we started recording this podcast, we were talking um, about this Daily Mail headline about this um this woman who I think I think the Daily Mail headline was is this the worst parent in the world and and she basically she took her toddler I think rock climbing or it might have been a baby rock climbing with her in a in a uh, I think it might have been a it was either like a baby Bjorn strapped to her chest or it might have been a kind of one on on the back um but again I think she might have been quite a like a really good rock climber and so just because she's going rock climbing doesn't mean she's going to fall. Actually, she might have done that route a hundred times. She might have been super confident that this is this is fine. I'm definitely not going to fall. I'm not putting my baby at risk. But again, like for a novice rock climber to do that, terrible idea. Terrible. And actually, the amount of women I see pushing buggies across the road while they're looking at their phones, I mean, I'd say that's a lot more dangerous yeah. than an experienced rock climber. Who And very often when you're take, you, you acknowledge that you're taking a risk, you really think about it. Yes. It's when you don't think you're taking a risk very yes, often. Yes, there's all sorts of mindless risks that we take every single day. And then, and then when, yeah... Uh, when you when this is the problem with pregnancy suddenly when you're pregnant you're visibly carrying a child and it's another person and and so you must take no risks whatsoever even though you know you might be crossing the road pregnant and and get hit by a car sadly um there you know there are risks there are risks in life Mm. and we need to put risk into perspective yeah um when you when you look at some of the the advice especially when it's given out by you know to a huge population for example the world health organization and breastfeeding let's say how important Mm. it is to breastfeed one thing that i find really interesting is that it's very difficult to give one piece of advice to a massive population because everyone has very very different circumstances and people often don't acknowledge that they see the advice you should breastfeed for it's really important to breastfeed for a year and they don't think about it deeper to say well there are some people for whom it's more important to breastfeed for example those that don't have access to clean water mm-hmm. those who don't have access to sterile you know feeding equipment or good nutritious formula yeah yeah so so I think I mean that definitely when I was writing bumpology the advice was the WHO advice was exclusive breastfeeding for two years that's a long time um two years goes very slowly um and for many women that's just not practical because they need to go back to work and then okay so if you if you insist on that well that means that they're going to be stressed their employer might not support that what does that mean does that mean someone has to bring the baby into work so that they can carry on breastfeeding um the reason why the who so there are various reasons for breastfeeding and and some of them are are supported by stronger evidence than others the strongest evidence for for breastfeeding is during the first few months after birth like maybe the first two or three months maybe up to six months and there the reason it's so important then is because you're passing on antibodies that will protect the baby against various mostly infectious diseases so things like respiratory illness like chest infections or or stomach bugs and and diarrhea and you know you can reduce hospitalizations from from diarrhea by breastfeeding Um, but again 
and 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 and, um, and sudden infant death syndrome as well. Um, but that's that's still quite a rare thing. Um, when it happens, it's terrible, but it's it's quite a rare thing. Um, but some of those infectious illnesses are going to be more dangerous and more prevalent in some countries than others. So, if you're making the the argument that you must breastfeed to reduce the risk of diarrheal disease in the UK yes it will have an impact but it's not going to be necessarily as dangerous and as severe as if if it was happening in a country where you don't have access to a hospital just down the road so you know I think and then and then you go beyond six months and again you know while your while your baby is getting breast milk they're getting antibodies so you're getting that protection but you know the the, ev- the the evidence for it to have a positive health impact gets kind of weaker the longer you leave it. And then, you know, you see headlines about stuff like breastfeeding pre- prevents against type 2 diabetes or heart disease, that sort of thing. And, and the evidence for that is, is kind of mixed. The, the, the kind of the kind of strongest, uh, strongest evidence for a sort of long term impact is actually on IQ. And it suggests that babies who are breastfed for longer tend to have, like, their IQ is a couple of points higher. And that's really interesting. But is there not a socioeconomic um, Maybe, well, no, actually, with, with that, um, with that, they have, the studies have been good quality enough that they're able to disentangle that, and it's, it still remains. But it might not even be the breast milk. It might be that a breastfed baby is cuddled and, and touched more. It might be that the mother spends more time you know talking to them and and singing to them and all that sort of thing while they're while they're being breastfed and it's really difficult to control for those things but then there's all sorts of other things that that influence IQ as well um you know do you stick your kid in front of a telly for long periods and not not speak to them Mm. um you know, there's lots of other things that will affect IQ. So obsessing about breastfeeding, and if I don't breastfeed for two years, am I going to be stopping them from going to Oxbridge? You know, that's that's silly. Mm. I mean, there's an element that, you know, I know that children and babies, what they want most from their parents is that they're happy and relaxed. And for many women who can breastfeed easily, breastfeeding is the easiest way to feed your baby because yeah. you've got the milk there the whole time ready to go and that that makes them you know less stressed than kind of stressing about making formula absolutely. and that might have an impact absolutely yeah yeah um yeah, totally and it, but the thing the problem is that you know yes breastfeeding is great I breastfed my babies for like six months maybe I think the first one was six months second one maybe nine months and then I gave up um but I have plenty of friends who really really struggled and felt awful about not breastfeeding because they were you know made to feel like they failed somehow and for some people it's easier than others and it's it's not as simple as just saying you must breastfeed um and then the the other thing that doesn't really factor into the health advice is mixed feeding so mixing bottles and breast and there's not been a great deal of studies on that um those that have been done suggest that so there's Latin American women, they call it Los Dos. It's a, it's a thing, you know, yeah. you do some breastfeeding, you do some bottle feeding. And I can't, it's in bumpology, but um, I think the evidence there suggests that actually they continue breastfeeding for a long time, but they're combining it with bottle feeding. So there's this whole idea of nipple confusion, which is if that you introduce a, a bottle earlier, your baby will reject the breast. Well, the evidence from Latin American women doesn't support that you know they carry on breastfeeding for a long time but they mix it with bottle feeding and that's a that's a nuance that no one's really studying they're not kind of going well let's do a study where we look at the health impact of mixing um bottle feeding and breastfeeding and mixing formula milk and and breast milk and see what impact that makes on a child's development people aren't doing those studies and actually when the who is doing these kind of studies and looking at this they'll you know they'll reject women who are mixing because it just complicates the picture it's 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 complicated but also studies like that depend on a degree of honesty there's a lot of breastfeeding guilt and I'm sure I mean I can't really remember how long I breastfed my children for but I wouldn't put it past myself to remember that I breastfed them for a little bit longer than I actually did because then also it takes a little time to stop 
So, you know, does does breastfeeding, you know, what if you're most of the feeds or, you know, and what about when you stop, you know, you're doing, you can't just stop from one day to the next. You sort of usually stop over quite a long period of time. Do you say that you stopped breastfeeding when your child was exclusively not being breastfed or was it two months later when they literally didn't have anything else at all? Yeah, and also memory, memory is unreliable. So I've just told you, I've just told you in completely like, you know, good faith. I breastfed for six months and nine months. Actually, I was mixed feeding. So I was, we were, we were, and I'd forgotten that actually. But I, <laughs> but then we, I was talking about lost loss and I was like, hang on a minute. I did, I did. I did. So I started off pumping and, and my husband would give a bottle in the evening of breast milk. And then, and then eventually we were just like, oh, pumping's hard work. I'm going to breastfeed most of the time, but that evening, that kind of dream feed, we're going to use formula. So we, we did do a bit of a mixed feeding actually, but no one's done a study to, look at the impact of that I just kind of went well they're getting they're getting mostly breast milk so that's that's probably good but then plenty of people are just feeding formula milk and you know it might make an impact it might make a small impact but and that's the thing I mean even if they did do a study on this it's unlikely that there's going to be massive evidence to show that combination feeding is so much worse than than exclusive feeding you know there might be a slight difference there might be a slight difference but it's there's lots of other stuff that's going to make a difference to yeah. the baby's life chances as well. Sometimes what you read in in uh, papers, you read sort of alarming things like, oh, what did I read about um, cesareans? If you have a if you have a baby by cesarean, your your child has a twenty percent higher chance of of having asthma, which sounds big, but that's not necessarily um, the right way to look at that figure. I mean, that's not an I think I would say well you know, of every 100 babies born by cesarean, 20 of them are going to have asthma. Is that correct way of interpreting that data? I'm going to turn my page and you can, <laughs> you can cut it. Um, yeah, so I think that that's completely right. So, so again, when we're talking about risk, there's a very simple, you know, when we're talking about risk, there headlines are often misleading because, I mean, journalists are getting much better at this. Um, but... Um, there are two types of risks in a in a kind of like, I mean, there's more, but that there are two things often that get reported. The first one is relative risk. So um, the example I like to give is of, um, there's this line that's often trotted out in antenatal classes, which is that if you have an epidural, epidural pain relief during labour, um, you're 42% more likely to need an instrumental delivery. Well, actually, you won't even be given that figure. You'll just be told, if you have an epidural, you're at an increased risk of having an instrumental delivery, one involving forceps or a, a Vontu's vacuum extraction. And if you're a pregnant woman, especially if it's your first baby, I know I was completely terrified of tearing. I thought this this cannot happen under no circumstances as a doctor coming near with, with their forceps. That's that's not happening. Or and I'm definitely not having an episiotomy either. No, <laughs> this is not going to happen. So when you hear something like, well, there's an increased risk of of needing forceps if you have an epidural, well, then you go, well, then I'm not going to have an epidural. I'll, I'll do it the natural way. And then you kind of go, okay, well, let's read the newspaper headline that says, let's read the article. And it might say, okay, so there's a 42% increased risk of needing um, forceps if you have an epidural. 42%, that sounds quite a lot. Huge. Yeah, I don't want to do that. No way. Pretty much definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a really big number, but then, so that, that's something called the relative risk. So that's, you know, the chances of this happening compared to this. Um, but then what's actually more relevant is the absolute risk. So that is, um, if the chances of something, if the chances of like the, the thing, like needing an instrumental delivery are pretty low to start with. So actually in the case of instrumental deliveries, about 12% of British women will have um, an instrumental delivery involving forceps or avontus. Um, that's that's quite a small percentage, you know, that's like one in 10 women, one in 12 women. Um, the, and then you've got like this 42% increased risk if you have an epidural. That is 42% of 12%, so it's actually 5%. Or to look at it another way, um, for every 20 because 5% is like uh 1 in 20 yeah 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 so um so to look at it another way um you'd have to have 20 women having an epidural for one of them to end up with an extra 
instrumental delivery, which might be absolutely fine and not require an episiotomy or a tear. It might, you know, it might, might go be completely fine. fine. And also, it might not be happening because of the epidural and the epidural making you more sleepy or sluggish or, or the baby, you know. It might just be that because you're already anaesthetized, it's a lot easier for the doctors to get in there with the forceps and, and do that. So, you know, if you're told that, if you're given that figure, one in 20, you might go, well, oh, I'm actually in quite a lot of pain now. I think I really could do with an epidural and I'll, I'll take that like one in 20 extra risk of maybe needing forceps. Well, I've got to say, in my experience, I, I don't know any woman who is sitting in the labour ward in labour going, oh, I don't know, shall I have an epidural? Shall I not? It's either like you don't need one or you will kill someone to get an epidural. Yeah. It's so black and white whether or not you need them. It's it, not like when you're not in labour, you're thinking, oh, shall I? I don't, I don't know. I know, but I think the problem is that um, women are given the impression by some people and some organizations that labor is something that it's a choice that you can choose how you labor and you can choose how you have your baby and that um and that there's that you can control it and actually most women who've had a baby would go would go not really not so much I mean I wanted a natural birth um I had a natural birth but I had an epidural and then I and then after all that worrying about tearing and episiotomy, I wish I, hadn't, I wish I had had an episiotomy because I ended up having a tear and it resulted, it was a second degree tear, but it might have been, I think they misdiagnosed it. I think it was probably a third degree tear. I ended up with several years of surgery on my perineum to kind of correct everything because of that. Um, and, you know, but it, I'm fine now. And I spent all that time worrying about stuff that I actually was completely out of my control and um yeah and then no one really talks about then this is the other problem like everyone talks about the birth and then no one talks about what happens if you have a tear you know you're not educated usually about what happens if you have a tear how to look after it how normal it is and when to seek help and where to seek seek help. help and and stuff like you know in in France Women routinely have access to a gynecologist after birth who will do a kind of postnatal MOT mm. on you and check that all your muscles are working properly and that you don't need some sort of physiotherapy. And if you do need physiotherapy, they'll refer you for it. But in the UK, we just, you know, we kind of neglect women after birth and we, we're just like, we've done your job now, get on with it. <laughs> was there anything that, when you were researching this book, was there anything that you thought was probably not going to have much evidence to uphold it at that actually when you researched it you felt that there was some quite good evidence to support the theory um uh yeah I mean so so one thing is the whole skin to skin thing I mean it sounds lovely and um I was definitely I definitely you know alongside in my birth plan I will not have an epidural and I, I will not have an episiotomy and I will have a natural labour. I also said I want immediate skin to skin contact with my baby. But I mostly said that because it sounded really lovely and it sounded like a nice thing and to do. And I mean, why, no why not? I mean, there's no risk. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I want that baby on me as soon as possible, please. Um, but, you know, there is actually really strong evidence that, that skin to skin contact is good for babies. So, you know, they, they babies, um, babies who get immediate skin to skin contact tend to breastfeed sooner um and also there's a really interesting thing about about their body temperature so so it seems to help them regulate their body temperature a lot a lot faster um so there are physiological things that are going on um when a baby is held close they also cry less um and it's probably probably the thought is that it's it's kind of um it's curtailing this stress effect in the baby. So actually, it's a really stressful thing for a baby to be born. <laughs> we don't necessarily, I mean, we think about it being stressful for the mum, but it's really stressful for the baby as well to be, you know, floating around there happily. And then suddenly all these contractions yeah, They are going never on knew this day was going to come. Out and, you know, <laughs> then suddenly they're, you know, all sorts of things are happening to the baby's body at birth, like they're the plumbing of their heart gets rearranged and stuff. You know, there's, there's a lot going on for the baby as well. And and um, that kind of contact with the mother's body, the, the like the regularity of the heartbeat, the the temperature, these things seem to like curtail that that stress response that's going on, on in the baby. But then also it seems to like the baby also has, it has benefits for the mum. So maybe the baby's movements kind of massaging the mother's body, that 
possibly causes the the placenta to detach more more quickly and 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 more easily so you know yeah there's 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 a lot of good reasons for having skin to skin contact that you know it sounds like a lovely thing but it's actually there's re- there's physiological reasons why it's an important thing as well but then that's also i think the perfect example of like weighing up the risk and the benefit on an individual basis so if the birth is straightforward and the baby's healthy then obviously skin to skin is is a really important really beneficial thing but if there are concerns about the baby's breathing or then it, obviously it's more important for them to be you know taken and giving the care they need and while they'll be missing out on that skin to skin it's definitely in the baby's and the mother's best interest for that baby to be given the care yeah they and, need. Th- and those little those benefits i've just talked about you know they're all you know is that going to have a long-term impact on the baby's health probably not but it might you know help them just in the first few days after birth it might make breastfeeding a little bit more easy to get established but that doesn't mean that if your baby doesn't get skin to skin contact they're not going to be able to breastfeed not at all it just means you know again like maybe it's going to maybe it's going to be slightly harder for some some people maybe it's going to be a lot harder for some people it's going to have no impact whatsoever it's very individual Mm. And I think, you know, back to that sort of motherhood guilt that people feel. I've had so many emails from women who've done our antenatal class and just said, I feel so guilty, I couldn't do skin to skin for whatever reason. Is this going to impact my baby? And I just really strongly believe it's important to paint both sides of the pictures. A bit like, you know, um, the idea that you have to have a cesarean. And we know that, we suspect that descending through the birth canal is really great for um, exposure to vaginal bacteria, which may be really good for colonizing their gut. But ultimately, you know, the risk of delivering a breech baby vaginally is much greater than, um, you know, the potential impact of not having exposure to that gut bacteria. So obviously for the woman who would have a very straightforward natural delivery, it's much better for the baby and for the mother to have a vaginal delivery. But for the mother with a certain complication, it's much safer for her to have a cesarean and much better for the baby to have a cesarean. Yeah, but there will be there will also be situations where actually it's better for the woman and the baby to have a plan, an elective cesarean, even though there's no medical reason for doing it so like women's mental health if you have somebody I had a friend who was extremely anxious and you know I'd say like verging on neurotic through pregnancy worrying 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 it was taking a massive toll on her mental health and she was really worried about the birth and she said I would like an elective cesarean and there are reasons there are some reasons why you know okay so again what happens to women and their continence after after having a baby um you know there are some reasons why it might be better to have a cesarean but then it's again like weighing up the different risks but you know in the case of that woman's mental health I I think almost certainly it on balance it probably was the right thing for her to have an elective cesarean Mm. but you know her doctors judged her and at one point wanted to refer her for you know sort of psychiatric assessment because just because she they didn't know that she was really really anxious don't think she told them that she just said I've done the research I think on balance I would like to have an elective c-section and they questioned that because the mantra is no vaginal birth is better and yes maybe marginally on balance probably is but yeah. Not always. But also having your baby vaginally is not the only good thing you can do for your child's gut health or, or for their long-term immunity. I mean, I have two babies that were born by cesareans and I'm very lucky they have amazing immune systems. But there's so much more you can do to, to you know, to, to influence that. You know, things like not keeping your home too tidy, exposure mm-hmm. to dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, Get them like, out into the countryside from exactly. a really, really young age. Yeah, not washing all your fruit the whole time. Yeah. Letting them have a good, healthy diet, not, yeah. you know, a bunch of fast food food but I think so often it's presented in a way that if you want the best thing for your baby you should do this and if you don't do it then you've missed the boat but there's so many other things you can do and yeah I mean I don't think I've seen a I don't think I've seen anyone I don't think I've seen newspaper headlines about the importance of getting your children to eat loads of fiber apart from you know fiber's good but no one's talking about well fiber might help your child develop really healthy gut bacteria which will you know mm. stand them in really healthy stairs long term or yeah lots of fruits and vegetables all, all that stuff it, it's a lifetime and parenting is you know parenting you parent your child for a long time and also the messages you implant in their brains about the importance of healthy eating or exercise and all these things matter life is a long time mm. and you know obsessing about one event birth is 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 wrong 
But also, we're all going to make the wrong decision at some point in our life. That doesn't need to be catastrophic. It can just yeah. be accepted as a wrong decision. You learn from it and... No one's perfect. Yeah. No one's perfect, no. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the myths you encountered, because there are so many of them around um, birth, is there one myth that annoys you the most that seems to be kind of perpetuated? Around birth. A birth or, or anything, anything in the book. Parenting. I tell you what really annoys me actually is is the nipple confusion thing and I because again going back to breastfeeding um I really I could breast I breastfed but um this is just to clarify the idea that if you give your baby a bottle it's not going to be able to feed from the nipple or a dummy or a nipple shield so with my first I had quite flat nipples definitely definitely with when I with my first daughter and um and it was really difficult for her to latch on we kind of got there but the thing that saved my breastfeeding career was nipple shields these you know like small silicon kind of like hats. Hey, a little hat you put yeah. on your nipple. like a little sombrero yeah <laughs> <laughs> plastic I remember sombrero my health visitor being like ooh, ooh, nipple confusion oh no don't do that just get by and i had terrible cracks nipples she was really struggling to latch on and my friend said just try nipple shield and and suddenly she could breastfeed and suddenly my nipples healed and suddenly you know I was able to carry on breastfeeding when I was frankly on the verge of giving up and that and then you kind of look into the research on nipple confusion and I don't know if we talked about it earlier but um you know maybe there's one or two studies that have suggested that giving a bottle to a baby earlier might influence their ability to breast their you know their propensity to breastfeed later on but then there's plenty of other evidence saying that's not a thing at all and again like someone somewhere has latched onto this idea of nipple confusion and it's just not it's just not supported by good evidence and yet I mean I think most British women are told nipple confusion don't give your baby bottle don't use a dummy don't use a nipple shield because it'll stop them being able to breastfeed and that's really bad and if you have you've already ruined it yeah you've already yeah, definitely stop using it right now. Even if that's the thing that, you know, my yeah, my health visitor was like, well, okay, fine. It's, you, you don't have a cracked nipple now, so just take it off. Otherwise, you know, ooh, we don't know what will happen. And that's really scary. You're like, ooh, ooh, also, yes, I should be worried. Ooh. Yeah, but if a health professional tells you that, we don't really question it. I wouldn't. And yet there seems to be so much misunderstanding around it. And it's not particularly helpful. No, it's not. No. But, you know, health visitors aren't trained to interpret scientific literature and, and read medical journals. So, you know, they, they, they tell people what they've been told and what they've been educated. And, and, and sometimes um, even doctors are not up to date with the latest evidence. So I think it's really, it's really important to, you know, okay, take take their advice because they are health professionals but also sometimes question them and say why do you say that can you point me to the study that says that and if you have a good one they might say you know what I don't know I don't know or I'm going to look into that and then they might look into it and come back and say you know what I think you're right I wouldn't have breastfed if I wasn't for the nipple shields. There's just no way. My nipples are totally the wrong shape. And I, honestly, I, my babies would not have got any breast milk had it not been for those things. So yeah, me too. I'm with you there. I, that really does that really does annoy me. Mm. Um, well, I love the book. I absolutely adore it. I think it's full. And even though it's written seven or eight years ago, it um, is full of fantastic um pieces of information that demystify the whole process of pregnancy and I couldn't recommend it more highly are you um I mean obviously evidence changes you just said you know there are new studies that come out the whole time but it's pretty relevant and do you update it or how does that work it hasn't been updated but I do keep an eye on stuff that comes out and um and stuff I mean science changes very slowly actually and I don't think anything has come out that's made me go oh my god I must rewrite that passage in bumpology because they found something completely different now um no it's still I think it's still relevant and it's very very readable I I, I got to say I really enjoy the way you write and you sort of disseminate what can often be quite kind of just just quite confusing information and especially when you're pregnant you think oh god I don't want to wade through um you know nature or the lancet I can't do that I'm well, definitely not honest, one of those people <laughs> I wrote that. it so so I, I wrote the book when I was 
like by pure coincidence and, and fortitude when I I start I think I got commissioned to write the book and then about two months later I discovered I was pregnant with my with my second child so actually it was written while I was pregnant um, and then I, I submitted the manuscript about two weeks before my son was born so then I was I was doing the edits while while breastfeeding um, so it was written very much with with a pregnant brain that was kind of struggling to concentrate and I, I really felt very strongly that this is a book that has to be something that people can just dip into with a very clear indexing system so people could just go I wonder about that has she written about that and then just find the page and just read that you know it's kind of bite bite size no answers, and I know when really. you're talking about morning sickness are you saying I'm I was I'm actually in the throes of really nasty morning yeah, yeah, sickness myself I, rem- I remember sitting in bed with my laptop feeling really awful and researching morning sickness and going why has no one actually found out why we get morning sickness that is one of you know there are certain things where I'm like why why don't we know the answer to that is there anything that you did differently as a result of writing the book in your second pregnancy um as opposed to your first with the sort of new knowledge that you'd acquired from all the research you were doing I think with pregnant I think with pregnancy definitely uh I was just a lot more relaxed about about birth really because um what I what really what really uh bothered me actually was that when when I was pregnant with my son and I was writing Bumpology I was kind of revisiting all the stuff that my antenatal teacher had told me the first time around and realizing that it was just like wrong (laughs) or misleading (laughs) wrong misleading at best wrong at worst um and so a lot of the worries about birth I mean with with my son I I knew I was going to have to have an elective c-section because of the tearing I'd had the first time around so that removed a lot of the worry about that but then I'd also done the sort of research on actually relative and absolute risks of associated with c-sections and went ah yeah it's it's okay it's fine to have a c-section and actually I don't have any choice it just I was just more chilled out about the whole thing because I'd done the research and and realized that actually a lot of the things we're told to worry about as long as we're sensible as long as we you know there are some things that you do need to worry about like alcohol there are other things that you just don't need to worry about so much and ultimately the mother that's you know happy with the fact that she has to have a cesarean or at peace with the fact that she has to have a cesarean and greets her baby and she's happy and relaxed and focused on the child rather than what kind of birth she had is ultimately going to have a profound impact on that child yeah and actually you know I've done both my first labor lasted more than 40 hours by the time my daughter came out I was a complete wreck and then I was lying there being stitched up and I was a complete mess and when my son was born I went in I'd had a good night's sleep um I actually knew my midwife because she was my friend's sister um I was able to choose the music that was on in the operating theatre I was able to request immediate skin-to-skin contact and when my baby came out and I had him straight away I was like I felt fresh and and happy and then, you know, the pain came afterwards in that case. You know, there, there are definite downsides to C-sections and, you know, you can't move around so much in the immediate aftermath. But, you know, there, you know, there are pluses and minuses of both. Yeah, it's the bigger picture. Bigger picture. Bigger picture is, is the key, I think. Yeah. 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 Don't obsess over, the, over, over small risks and yeah. just think about, you know, life is long. Yeah. Well, Linda, thank you so much for coming along to talk to us today. It's been a real pleasure finally getting to meet you, having been such an avid fan of of Bampology. Oh, thank you. And thank you all for downloading another episode of The Parenthood. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us uh, wherever you get this podcast from. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.